Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. We're all weird about money, writes Paco de Leon in her new book, Finance for the People. And getting a grip on our finances, she says, often means understanding the personal experiences, even traumas that have led us to internalize certain beliefs about money. And it means learning how to deal with our unequal capitalist system. It's a tall order, but can be done, says De Leon, who runs a firm that helps creative people manage their finances. She joins us to talk about all things money and to hear from you what's affected your ability to get the money you deserve. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Paco de Leon runs a firm that specifically helps creative people with their finances and businesses and is a creative herself. She's also not a fan of capitalism, and both of these things guide the kind of advice de Leon gives in her new book, Finance for the People, where she addresses head-on the limiting beliefs we often hold that affect how we use money and the challenges we face dealing with an unequal social and economic system. Paco de Leon, welcome to Forum. Thank you so much for having me. Really glad to have you. First, curious what made you want to bring your knowledge about financial planning to creative people? Well, I identify as a creative person myself, and I've been playing music my entire life, basically. When I was 15 or 16, I started playing in bands, and that continued, frankly, until this day. Mm -hmm. And so you know, when you're in a creative community like that, when you start playing in bands, you start to meet other people playing in bands. And, you know, I found myself studying finance and economics in the daytime. But at nighttime, I found myself hanging out with painters and people who were studying things like drums and literature. And it was such a juxtaposition. But by being in my community, I realized how much creative people need financial services and they need help. But being in that world all day long, I realized that a lot of it is just not positioned or geared or marketed towards the creative community. So I frankly saw a gap in the market and I was curious about whether or not I could fill it. What was the need or some of the needs that you saw among creatives when it came to getting a grip on finances or understanding the financial system? Honestly, a lot of basic financial literacy is lacking. Um, You know, we don't force our children through our school systems to learn this kind of thing, right? We we learn about the Pythagorean theorem, which I still know in my head, right? Um, But we don't learn about budgeting or we don't learn how to even look at, you know, the label inside of a grocery store to understand how to weigh which option is better. So 
I just wanted to bring basic financial literacy to people. And I wanted to do it in a way where I was meeting them where they were. And I wanted to, you know, do it in a way that was non-judgmental and I didn't want to make people feel shame or guilt because they didn't know something. Did you find that artists, creative people were often like way underpaid for their work? Oh, definitely. There's this phenomenon that you see with artists and creative people where when you're a creative yourself, you are putting your heart, your soul, your life experience into what you're creating, whether that's a commercial for Nike or a mural for Facebook. And what I saw was a lot of creative people are challenged when they bring their art into the world of commerce, because you're literally asking, you're literally asking companies and organizations to pay you for who you are and how you think about the world and what Mm -hmm. you're feeling. And that, you know, that's challenging for people. Do they feel like it all like also take away from their sort of creative flow or their creative independence? Is that a worry that you hear? Definitely. I think that has been an ongoing narrative. I think it was with, it started with the Rolling Stones, actually. I believe they were the ones who were approached to do a car commercial or was it the Doors? One of the two. And uh, they're famous for saying no. And I think that kind of created this idea that if you, you know, work for the man or you make a car commercial, you're in a way selling out. But Mm -hmm. I think uh, as the decades have gone on, what we're seeing is that the patrons of the past, if you think about the the Medici's and, and the patrons of the past, those are now the Coca-Cola's and the Facebook's of today, for better or for worse. It's And as you point out, too, I mean, at the point that, that the Rolling Stones or the Doors made that comment, they were probably wielding a lot of a lot of power and probably had a lot of money or yeah. maybe. So I guess it would be easy to kind of think about your book when you're providing tools and helping people gain financial literacy, that you're helping them kind of learn to to work within a very unjust system. But one of the things that I really was struck by and liked about your book is that you went further than that by basically saying that if you are not focused on your financial literacy, if you're not focused on your ability to get money to to survive and do your art, then you also are not able to put um, your, what you bring, your power, your art toward changing the parts of the system that you don't like. Yeah, it, it, that is sometimes a tough pill to swallow, but it's the reality of the situation that we're in. Uh, the world that we live in today is dictated by the folks who have the money and who have the power. And I believe that my purpose on this earth is to have this larger conversation and to shout it from the mountaintops that creative people belong in this space. And furthermore, we have to get the money if we want to see the change, right? We have to create the means of production, own the means of production, and only then can we start to find other ways to interact with one another and put people before profit and think about how we can create a benefit for a community versus just a shareholder return. And, you know, I'm not saying that there's anything, you know, wrong with that, except that we need to open up our minds to the possibility that we have the power to create something different. We're talking with Paco de Leon, author of Finance for the People, also founder of the Hell Yeah Group, a financial firm designed to assist creative people with their finances. And I'm curious, 
listeners, can you relate? Are you a creative who doesn't like thinking about money but needs to? What do you want to ask Paco de Leon? You can call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. And actually, Chris writes here, Frustration. That is how I feel when I look at the choices I have for investing money regarding the economy through the lens of the one percenter stock market vis-a-vis the 99 percenters. I feel overwhelmed and conflicted. On one hand, these wealth building mechanisms have been in place for hundreds of years, enriching a small group of men representing oppressive, misogynistic, racist, classist values that persist. On the other hand, I have a small pension managed by a third party, and it's increased by close to 30 percent in the last six years. Do you hear frustrations like this, Paco de Leon? Constantly. And it's something that I deal with myself. I think from a larger perspective, society is learning how to deal with this kind of cognitive dissonance, right? Where we know that the mechanisms for generating wealth are inherently exploitative, yet what is our option? Are we going to opt out of the system? You know, for those of us that are not in the 1%, for the 99%, you know, being a conscientious objector to participating in investing, well, that's going to not allow us to survive. It's not going to allow us to, you know, have a retirement or have a retirement that's, you know, comfortable. And so we are left with not so great choices, but from my perspective and the way that I walk through the world, I, what works for me is learning all the rules, learning how it works, and then deciding from there, where's my agency and how can I create change within a system? I know that's not everybody's perspective. There's lots of folks who want to just burn it all down. That hasn't worked for me in my life. So that's why I have that, that perspective. Well, let's talk a little bit about how you come to walk in the world. As you do, you write, we are all weird about money, which I love because it's so true and it, and it encompasses so many different things. But I'm curious, like, how are you weird about money? <laughs> I knew it. If I was going to put a book out there telling everybody they were weird about money, I was going to have to fess up to my own weirdness, right? Yeah. Um, I'm weird about money in a lot of different ways, uh, but I think the main theme that I've been contending with my entire life is this idea that I'm not enough, that I'm not worthy, that at my core, I am fundamentally flawed. And that comes from growing up queer in Orange County, California, and going to Catholic school for 13 years. Uh, Granted, Catholic school was both a blessing, but it was also a problem, right? It's a privilege, but it's also, it was rough because the messaging there uh, from the church all day, every day is that who you are, how you were made, what, you know, what you are being a queer woman, you are fundamentally flawed. And as I grew up, you know, I moved to Los Angeles. I found people that accepted me, but I never dealt with that wound, that pain. Mm. And then I suddenly found myself constantly under earning throughout my career over seven years through about three jobs, I somehow was making less money on the seventh year. And I didn't understand why. Yeah. So I thought, okay, if I jump ship and I start my own company, surely the, you know, surely the world will look at me different and value me different. And just for some context, my last job as a junior financial planner 
I'm sorry, my last job was actually a consultant for marijuana businesses. And I, you know, I took a huge pay cut for that. I was making less than $36,000 a year. When I jumped and I worked for myself in the first year, I was able to make the same amount of money, but I was still under earning and I was still undercharging. And that was the moment when I realized, hey, I have a finance degree. I have an economics minor. I have all this experience. Now I'm working for myself. What's going on? Why am I still not earning enough? And I slowly just, you know, we're all like an onion with many, many layers. I slowly started to peel those layers away. And what I realized was that I have this narrative that I am not enough. I am not worthy. And that translates to how I interact with money. I have, I have had bad boundaries when it came to clients. Um, I was willing to compromise a lot more than I should have. And I was just not valuing myself. And, you know, that took a lot of work. And it's still a wound that, you know, I'm still working on healing, frankly. You say it took a lot of work. And right after the break, actually, since we are coming up on one, I'd love to hear what that work entailed and how you figured that out. But in in the meantime, I, I also then want to add a question to our listeners, which is, you know, what has affected your ability, you think, to get the money that you deserve. Again, the number to join the conversation is 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. We're talking with Paco de Leon. Her new book is Finance for the People, Getting a Grip on Your Finances. More of Forum after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about getting a grip on our finances with Paco de Leon, uh, founder of the Hell Yeah Group, which is a financial firm designed to assist creatives with their finances. And Paco has a new book called Finance for the People. And you can join the conversation, 866-733-6786 is the number. Post your thoughts or questions on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Email us, forum at kqbd.org. And just before the break, Paco, you were talking about uh, the ways that you were weird about money, the things that you struggle with with regard to money, but that you went through a process of realizing that you were 
undercharging and and really undervaluing yourself. I'm so curious how you figured that out. Uh, it was a long and winding road, and you know, I had to do maybe what a lot of people would think are weird things. Um, so the first weird thing that I started to do was. I would just put down a cushion and I would plop down on that cushion and I would sit quietly and I would try to meditate. And for me, meditation, the gift that it gave me was that it allowed me to look at my thoughts without holding on to them, without clutching onto them and believing them. So this thought I have of you're not enough, you're not worthy, you're not deserving, you're fundamentally flawed. I could think it, but I could look at it like a cloud passing through the sky. I no longer had to latch onto it. So that was the first step. Uh, the next thing I did was I, I did some talk therapy, which was really helpful because for me, what was going on was I was afraid to feel my feelings. I, for whatever, you know, for whatever reason, growing up the way that I grew up, it, it, I just didn't feel safe. And once I had that breakthrough with my therapist, what I realized was, okay, now I'm able to tolerate the pain of looking at my shame, of looking at this story and trying to heal it, you know, trying to address it. And even, even sometimes sitting with that pain and letting it just kind of pass, because that's one of the things I've also learned is sometimes it does really suck to feel something very painful, but that will always pass. And that was an important lesson for me. Another thing that's kind of weird, but, you know, a lot of creatives I'm sure can relate is I've had like a loose journal practice and on and off, I do, do this thing called morning pages where first thing in the morning, you kind of do stream of consciousness, you just write three pages and it's a way to kind of just empty out your head and empty out all of your stress and all of your feelings onto the page. And, you know, when you do that, you start to learn about yourself. You like, you start to see how you have these little stories running on repeat and they spill out onto the page and that's quite helpful. And um, one of the last weird things I did was I hired a coach actually. When I got the, when I got a literary agent um, and I was, you know, putting together the proposal for finance for the people, I was paralyzed. I needed to write a, a proposal for the book and it was like three months past due and I couldn't figure out why I was holding on, you know, why I wasn't moving forward. Yeah. And I, I hired a coach and I, you know, I honestly thought she was going to sit there, put on a little timer and like pull out, pull out a ruler and like hit my knuckles if I wasn't typing. <laughs> I, <laughs> but what we did was, you know, she has her experience. Her name is Kristen Sargent. Her experience uh, is in psychotherapy. She used to be a psychotherapist, but now she's a coach. And basically we did this thing called shadow work, which is a Jungian concept. And what, what she did for me was she taught me how to look at the parts of myself that I've rejected, right? All these parts that I thought were unacceptable to be in society because of my upbringing, because of what I've internalized, all of those narratives and those beliefs and those biases. And she taught me how to integrate that. And, you know, we did a bunch of different exercises and it's still something that I do to this day. And um, it's called shadow work. And uh, yeah, yeah. I, those are all the weird things that I did. But <laughs> of course, you have to take action while you're doing that. So I raised my prices and I changed my marketing. And, you know, I, I did those very practical things as well. Uh, well, we've got a lot of calls coming in. And let me see if I can get uh, Carol in Campbell. Hi, Carol. Hi. Thank you so much for this discussion and for the book. I'm excited to get it. Um, I am a choreographer, and 
I also teach um, as my, quote, real job to get the current flow of cash. But um, I find that myself and my colleagues often tell each other what we're worth, but we're not able to ask for that. Um, the conversation can deal with the coaching and maybe something that's affordable that um, kind of deals with like on a percentage rate, like um, somebody who can help us ask for the amount of money that we're worth and then take a percentage of that at least at first so that, you know, we have a means of getting in there <laughs> to kind of ask for that. Oh, are you asking for referrals? Sorry, you cut out for a second there, Carol. Oh, yeah. I, I was saying that um, my colleagues and I kind of um, are able to tell each other what we should be asking for for each other, but we're not able to ask for that for ourselves. And so I wondered if there are people out there that are coaches or if there's any kind of um, kind of information in the book that uh, kind of helps to get this kind of you know, to hire somebody that will work on maybe a percentage rate. Yeah. Um, Got it, Carol. Thanks. What do you think, Paco? You know, I have heard of people like this. They do exist. There are sales consultants or people who are like me. I really actually enjoy sales and they, you know, you, you retain them and they learn all about your business. They learn about, you know, what your offering is, who you're offering it to. And, they learn about the onboarding process and basically their job is to field all of your potential clients and to try to sell them on your services. And yes, they do take a percentage of the fee um, or of what you earn. I don't have those names off the top of my head. Would there be a way to like put this in a, in a show notes, like a podcast? Is that a possibility? Yeah. Well, and also we can, we can connect you and have you share information just after the break, if there is a way to do some resources there. But Carol, thanks for the call and for, for raising that and, and for helping us understand the range of what kind of assistance is out there. And let me go next to David in Oakland. Hi, David. Hi. Um, I'm just calling in because I found this conversation to be really personal for me. You know, I'm a young black man and an entrepreneur um and a lot of these like self-worth conversations like really resonate with what was hard for me about you know starting the process of becoming an entrepreneur you know i, I basically took like a weekend seminar that did a lot of internal growth work yeah. and that's what launched my career something that i'd been wanting to do for a long time but just didn't have like the courage to do and like my context really was that like America isn't built for a black man to succeed. So why try, you know, and while that context may be correct, you know, I, the conclusion was, you know, holding myself back, you know, the why try part. So, um, you know, I just want to share that my own personal journey has been one really of like a lot of internal growth, like you were talking about, but also like taking a lot of like small concrete steps to kind of prove to myself that I can have the things that I want, that I can, you know, participate in these conversations that are racist and uh, patriarchal, you know, in the way that works for me, kind of like you were talking about. So I guess my question was, what kind of like concrete steps like financially have you taken to 
build what you've built for yourself. David, I, I, I appreciate you being so candid and honest about your experience, David. Um, in terms of concrete steps, I mean, I would say the smallest step that I've taken was I set up weekly finance time and I will not stop shutting up about weekly finance time to everyone who will listen. And it's, it's definitely one of the first things I mentioned in the book. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It's just dedicating 20 minutes to an hour every week where it's a standing meeting with yourself that you keep it sacred, right? You make yourself unavailable and you show up for yourself and you can start to do things really small. You can just wrangle all of your logins, right? Make sure you have all of your logins for all of your accounts. You can just start looking at your transactions. If you're an entrepreneur, weekly finance time is absolutely essential because you need to be looking at your business's vitals and your business's vitals are seen through the eyes of the finances, right? And so, you know, following up on invoices during weekly finance time, doing your bookkeeping during weekly finance time, learning, you know, taking workshops, reading finance for the people, you can do all of that during weekly finance time. And it's a very, very small step, but you're showing yourself that you are investing in your financial life and in your relationship with your finances. And from there, I believe what you focus on expands. So that's one thing. Yeah. I'm curious, what if you're not an entrepreneur? You're just at the stage where you're barely making enough to survive. You've got credit card debt, you've got student loan debt, or you've got other things happening for you, and you just feel like you're really lost in the whole system. Like, What would be one of the first things you do in this weekly finance, finance time that you set aside? I would definitely try to I mean, in that situation, it's triage, right? We're trying to see which trash can is on fire and which fire is the greatest. And we're going to deal with that first. And so for folks like that, I think getting on a budget is probably going to be the best or the first thing, because we want to assess what's going on. We want to assess the inflows and we want to assess the outflows and we want to do it very realistically. And so creating a budget based on the last three months of what came in and what went out, that's going to be your first step. And that's going to reveal a lot. Um, Sometimes what it reveals is very challenging and very painful, like it was for me. Uh, The hardest part, the hardest part of this personal finance equation is what happens when the income doesn't match what needs to be expended, right? That is the greatest challenge. That is so many people in our society are dealing with that. And a lot of times for folks, it's because we cannot overcome the circumstances that we're in and you cannot, you know, self-help your way out of that situation, frankly. Um, but you can, what you can do is you have to look at the ways that you, you have agency. Where is your agency in the situation? Sometimes that's really challenging. It's, you know, moving in with family or it's leaving the city that you're in, or it's, you know, applying for a job that isn't going to be the most fulfilling, but it will help you kind of, bridge to where you want to go. Well, let me go next to caller Deborah in San Francisco. Hi, Deborah. Hi, thank you for taking my call. It sounds like such an important book, um, Paco de Leon. Thanks for writing it. I have a question and it is, can you talk about the practice of businesses and other folks asking artists to do projects for free or for um, Thanks, Deborah. Uh, I think we got it. it the doing projects for free artists being asked to do projects for free and how to address that that's a great question um i like to look at projects um through a few different lenses like 
there are three ways that a project can be meaningful to an artist. The first one is it's going to pay you a bunch. The second one is it's going to kind of connect you into a community that is important. And the third one is it is so money connection and then portfolio or I know it sounds like I'm saying that you should do free work for exposure, but I'm definitely not. So let me back up here. I think you should only do a project for free if it's going to put you in, into a community that can then be meaningful. So for example, like Ted is famous for not paying anyone to do their talks and Creative Mornings is also famous for not paying anyone to do any of their mm. kind of speaking and talks. So if you can get into some kind of community like that where you're making meaningful connection and getting, you know, you're getting your work out there in a meaningful way, I would definitely do that. For folks who are artists who are just starting out, sometimes you have to do portfolio work. And I know that sucks, but the, but the, the, the thought process behind that is when you're first starting out, you know, you're kind of paying your dues in that sense. And once you have the portfolio to back it up, then, you know, you can start saying no to some of these uh, projects. Um, and then lastly, you, sometimes we have to look at projects just for the money. And I know that can be really challenging for creative people, but I want to kind of reframe that and say that if you do take on a project for, say, a company that you don't love, like Coca-Cola or a Facebook, something like that, understand that that can be a stepping stone and understand that that can allow you to have the income that you need to give you the space to then give back to the communities that you want to be working within. One of the things though, that this really gets at, I think, is, is an area that is also really hard for people that you touched on earlier, which is figuring out how to to declare your worth, what you deserve, how to price appropriately so that you're not undercharging. What are some of the ways to think about this conceptually, if not, you know, some of the steps that are more concrete in terms of trying to figure that out? Certainly. I think looking to the market to understand what the market is doing is a nice baseline, right? So you can see what other people are charging. And so that one, you don't underbid yourself because when you underbid yourself, you're, that's the, you're negotiating against yourself right from the beginning. So knowing kind of what the baseline is for the market is really important. Um, I do want to give a recommendation that is sometimes uh, very unpopular, but I think most artists could stand to raise their rates right now today by 30%. And the, the thought process behind that is one of the things a lot of folks who are self-employed and creative kind of don't take into account when they jump ship is that once you start working for yourself, you are going to assume a lot more expenses than you had as an employee. So you're paying self-employment taxes on your income. You're paying for any insurance that you need. You're paying for your attorney. You're paying for your accounting, your bookkeeping team. You're paying for you know, your email on your website, all these extra things. And raising your rates is a way to account for those additional expenses, or at least, you know, tacking on that additional 30% is definitely, you know, mm. helps with that. And lastly, approach pricing as an experiment. Understand that you have a thesis, right? You're, you're, you're going out there and you're like, or a hypothesis rather, your hypothesis is, can I charge, you know, $5,000 for a mural on the side of a building? Will companies pay for that? If you go into it with that perspective, every time you're pitching to a client and you're putting out your price, you're getting information from the market that is telling you, yes, we will pay for this or no, we will not. 
And kind of a good rule of thumb to understand is if everybody keeps saying yes to your prices, you, you get a potential client, it's a yes. And it's yes, 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 yes. And you are feeling like, uh-oh, I have a lot of work and everybody keeps saying yes. That's probably indicative that you're undercharging. You should be getting some no's. Uh, you know, your service is probably not appropriate for every single person. And, you know, getting some no's is a good sign that you're, you know, you're pricing in a place that is a little bit that makes a lot more sense. We're talking with Paco de Leon. Her book is Finance for the People. Paco is also a financial uh, founder of the financial firm, the Hell Yeah Group, which assists creatives with their finances. And you can join the conversation by calling 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook or email us, forum at kqed.org. You can also post your thoughts on Instagram. And this listener writes, the world tries to make it seem as if the jobs, bosses, employment system are the only way, as does my bosses, taking most of what I had rightly earned for themselves and their owners. Mark writes, I just want to mention that most mutual funds are heavily invested in fossil fuels and other carbon intensive industries. If one is invested in mutual funds and they don't know the companies those funds have invested in, they're most likely part of the problem and not the solution. Our listeners are raising a couple things that we will touch on more after the break. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about getting a grip on your finances with Paco de Leon, who's written a new book called Finance for the People. And you, our listeners, can join the conversation. 866-733-6786 is the number. 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And this listener writes, I work a low-wage job. What are we supposed to do? This is frustrating. I feel like that what your guest is saying is unrealistic. For people who are just scraping by, right? And we you talked about this a little bit in terms of how to do weekly time. But if you're dealing with, you know, really inconsistent income, unpredictability, things like that, Paco, I am curious, like, how how do we prioritize? How do we take the first steps to just try to get to some degree of stability? So I will say that I did not think that I would be living in a time where I would see that workers have more power. I, you know, when I wrote the chapter about earning more income, I, I didn't think we would be 
this book would be coming out during what we're calling the great resignation. And I will say that if you are a low wage worker and you are struggling to get by, there is a moment that we're having where corporations and companies are starting to realize that if you organize, you will have much more power than you realize. And I can't speak to how to organize. I can't speak to what you need to do. I can only see the writings on the wall and understand that finally we're reaching a time where the, the productivity gap between you know how productive workers are and how much they've earned, we've just reached a breaking point. The pandemic has accelerated, I think, what would have happened anyways. So I encourage you to, to, to do your research and to understand how to organize, because if we want to make real change, especially for low-wage workers, I think that's really where it starts. It has to come from there. You know, we can't, uh, like I said, when it comes to folks who cannot overpower their circumstances in those regards, we have to do everything we can to change the circumstances. Are you saying, though, that also there are more options for low-wage workers at this point where they might be able to leverage um their yes. willingness to work with for higher wages? Yes, I think that we're starting to see wages go up. I think corporations are starting to realize that they ch- they can't just offer, you know, folks crappy pay and and nothing and expect them to to show up and be abused by people who are, you know, wanting their their burger and fries. But things are definitely starting to change and I think if we can if workers can understand that they have power to push on that it's definitely possible one and two definitely there's I mean I think we've all gone to a place anywhere where there's there there's short staffed you know companies are hurting and I do think that we have the opportunity to workers have the opportunity to leverage that let me go to caller Carl in Santa Rosa. Hi, Carl. Hello. Thanks for waiting, Carl. Uh, What's on for the up- yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I was asked to try and keep it really brief. So I'll just like, uh, I'm 67. Uh, eight months ago, I had a brain seizure, which discovered I have three brain tumors, oh. uh, you know, and in, in, in treatment and all that stuff. And why I share that is that for my wife and me, um, all of a sudden, it brought into really super clear focus how important this conversation, this book is. Um, you know, we sort of went through our, our work life. We're not, it, my wife is, is a very creative person, but, you know, our day jobs were, uh, she worked, she's a therapist. She worked for hospice for a long, long time, uh, grief and bereavement counselor. Um, I worked for the Methodist Church as a pastor. I worked for uh, 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 transportation authorities. So, so we had all these like um, you know different funds and different places and everything. And we thought, oh yeah, one day we'll be retired. And all of a sudden, all that stuff just comes into super clear focus. And um, and so I, I guess I, what I'd say is thank you so much for offering this. And I hope everybody listening to you just really. Um, gets, you know, especially when you're younger, how all of a sudden you hit this wall and all this stuff is just critically important. Carl, thank you for saying that. And, and you know, I'm sorry to hear about, about what you're going through, but I'm also quite inspired by just the tone <laughs> that, that you have and, and the attitude that you have around this. Paco de Leon, I don't know if you have a response for Carl as well. But. Yeah, Carl, I appreciate you sharing and um, 
you know, I have a, the hard part about my job is that I have to find the middle ground between recognizing the reality of the situation that we live in an unequal society, but also trying to inspire people to realize that you have to find your agency, the government, nobody is going to come and, and save us, unfortunately. And even if we have something like universal basic income and student loans get canceled, we're still going to have to be responsible for ourselves. We're still going to have to be responsible for managing and budgeting that basic income. So I'm not here to say the system is great. Let's keep marching forward. I'm here to say the system is crappy, but I'm saying let's find our agency. And I think Carl was a lot more, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a little bit worked up about it, but uh, I appreciate you, Carl. You got my back and, uh, and uh, bringing this up as well. Thanks, Carl. Well, Tressa writes, I'm an arts and culture consultant, author, and creative coach. Artists often want to just talk without understanding that my input on their work is my work. I have a PhD in 30 years of teaching and curatorial experience. How can we help the creatives we serve value our time, knowledge, experience? I think putting it into the context that will help them understand that you talking to them is, is the value that you're providing. Um, depending on the types of creatives that you work with, you know, let's just take a, a music producer, for example. A music producer has to spend time listening to music. They have to spend time going out to watch live music. They have to spend time, you know, making connections in the music industry. And at the end of the day, the fee that they charge is going to be reflective of all that work, all those connections, the years and years of knowledge and the years of like refining their ear, right? And for you as a consultant, I think you should position your conversation in that way when you're letting your clients know, hey, when I'm talking to you, I know it seems like, well, one, it's, it's easy for me and, you know, that this is the only value that you're getting, me saying these words. But what you're really getting is you're getting all of the connections I've made over the years, all of the mistakes I've seen clients make, all of the things I've learned through my years of work, that's all being channeled into this conversation right now. And that's kind of how I think you can position your value. Colin writes, I'm looking for advice or resources for navigating the switch from being a creative in a work for higher capacity to having ownership in the final product. Colin, that's awesome. I think ownership in the final product is amazing because that is how you're going to generate wealth. Wealth is ownership at the end of the day. And you're either going to generate a royalty or have a part of an asset. And that's hugely important. I think the first thing you can look at is making sure that you have an accountant that works with small business owners because your taxes might look differently. You might start getting like a shareholder. You might have to file a shareholder return or you might be making a profit off of, you know, the end product. Um, and so it's important to have an accountant who can help you navigate those things because uh, if everything goes well, Colin, and you end up, you know, making a bit more um, on paper because now you have ownership, you just want somebody to help you kind of guide you through that. And I think that's probably the very first step in um, understanding what it's like to have ownership. Well, Colin, thanks for the question. And earlier we had a comment from a listener about investing. And one of the things that I think really is hard for people is the fact that the companies that you invest in aren't always doing things that you believe in. And mm -hmm. um, could you talk a little bit about that since, or help people kind of understand um, investing, how they should approach it, how they should reconcile some of these things? 
I don't think that everything we can do in life can be reconciled. And I think that's the larger lesson that society needs to learn. That sometimes it's very uncomfortable to understand the ways that we are inflicting pain on others or destroying the planet. And we have to sit with that and find other ways that make us feel like we are doing our part to, I guess, offset that. That's one thing to think about in terms of reconciliation. The other thing that I think is really important for people to understand is that the mechanism for making a profit in the stock market, the actual mechanism for doing that, that is exploitative, that is inherently exploitative. So even if we are investing in more socially responsible companies, which I do encourage everyone to do, there is still some exploitation going on because you are the shareholder and you are extracting the wealth from the organization instead of distributing it to the people who are creating it. So, um, you know, there's a lot to unpack there, uh, but I just want folks to realize that there are, you know, you have to do what you think is right for you to give to community and to to help leave this place better than, uh, than, than it was when you got here. And I can't answer everybody's question on how do I reconcile that? You know, how do they reconcile that? I think that's a very, very personal, personal question. Yeah. Yes. But how about in terms of conceptually, how do you... How do you want people to think about what investment, what investing is and the power of investing? Just curious how, how you frame that for people who are new to it. Certainly. Um, in terms of investing, it's really mind-blowing. I think the world of money is mind-blowing. Obviously, I wouldn't be continuing to do this work if I didn't. But you know, if we could just step back and look at money, money is a shared delusion in society. It is a we believe that it's all valuable. And if you look at cryptocurrency in that market, it is a black mirror reflection of how society understands you know, money and, and how we value it. So in terms of investing, I also take that kind of like, you know, wide-eyed, can you believe this is happening kind of a look because investing is insane. You take money that you've already earned at your job or it would, maybe it was given to you and you put it into the market and you do nothing. You sit on your butt and you watch Netflix or you lay on the grass looking at the clouds or you, you know, volunteer at a dog shelter and the money that you've put into the market makes more money. And to me, that's pure insanity. I don't think that it's going to go away anytime soon. So from my perspective, I think everybody needs to be investing in the market if we want to have more money and want to have more power. And want to have more options in our lives. I don't see any other way to build wealth that is so accessible and so easy. And over the last, I'd say 10 years, you know, I've seen people go from not knowing what to do, not knowing where to put their money. And then now we have these platforms like Betterment, which makes investing accessible and easy. And you don't have to know a guy anymore. You know, when I first started in, in the industry, you had to know like a guy and you needed like a million dollars to get help. And we just don't, we don't need that anymore. So I think this is a great opportunity for people to build wealth, especially as we're seeing housing prices, just they're insane. This is a way for folks who think that they will never have access to building wealth to finally build wealth. 
Well, David writes, and I think this is from earlier about how people are often asked to do things for free. David writes, I'm a successful glass artist and I'm frequently asked to donate for fundraisers. It's an unfair ask because it's always justified with two falsehoods. It's great exposure. You'll get a tax deduction. Exposure doesn't pay the bills and the IRS doesn't allow artists to deduct the retail value of donated artwork. And so that's the calculation that David's made here. And we're making lots of calculations here as we, we think about managing our personal finances while dealing with an unequal and often alienating financial system, which is what Paco de Leon writes about in her new book, Finance for the People. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Paco, do you often get asked whether someone should pursue something they love, even if it's not going to make them money or a lot of yes. money? definitely um that's a tough question i you know i love music and i chose not to pursue it and the lens that i view that through is well one the music industry is rough it is a you know it is a grisly fate in my opinion especially if you're i think on either side of the spectrum if you're a working class musician Um, or if you, you know, you're doing quite well, I think it is a hard business to be in. It's constantly changing. The technology has been constantly changing for the, you know, as long as the music industry has existed. And so for me, the calculation was, if this is the thing that I love, if it allows me to process my human experience, if it makes me feel like it's a part of me, I want to keep that for myself. And I don't know that everybody feels that way. um, But at the end of the day, even if you love something like I love what I do now, I love being able to sit here and pontificate about mm. what I think about money and how I can help people. And I, I feel like my work is meaningful. I feel like I'm able to help people change their perspective and then change their lives. And I feel like I'm contributing uh, in a meaningful way. But even if we, uh, this is going to maybe sound cynical, even if we, we choose to do what we love, some days it just feels like a job. Some days it's tough and some days we run down and some days it's hard. And so I think that the calculus is, again, a very personal equation for everybody to kind of weigh, you know, is it worth, you know, turning your passion, the thing you love into commerce? Do you want to have that negotiation? Um, The lens that I like to look things through is what kind of problems do you want to have? Do you want to have the problem where you get to do what you love, but you're not sure that you'll be able to make money or do you want to have problems where you are, you know, doing something that you don't love, but you have the free time or the flexibility to do what you love in your off hours. I think there's this also other question. And I wonder if you, or how you answer this personally, since it can also be such a personal calculation, but figuring out what is enough for you when it comes to how much money you make when it comes to your finances and how you manage them? Yeah, that's a challenging one. I think for me, the biggest challenge is looking at that story of, of worthiness and not letting my enough number um, kind of get wrapped up into that. Because I think it's easy in modern society for us to look at that enough number as a moving target, you know? And I think the best thing that we can do is is create space and time every day to kind of pause and reflect, am I, you know, am I still living the life that I want to live? And I think Steve Jobs is famous for saying something along the lines of like, if you had 
you know, when you look in the mirror, you know, and you, and you think you have a year left to live, how would you spend it or something like that? That's, I think also Tim Ferriss does this reflection every year. If I had a year to live, how would I spend it? And I often think about enough in that sense as well. Like enough is money, but enough is also like, am I participating in my community in the way that's meaningful to me? Am I living authentically? And sometimes to live authentically and to give yourself to your community means you have to, you know, sacrifice productivity and not earn as much. And, uh, you know, I think it's a, a larger conversation where the lines of what is quantifiable and not quantifiable are kind of blurred and overlapping. Well, you certainly taught us just how how personal finance is. And I know that uh, that's one of the things that that makes your book different. I also just want to give a shout out to all the illustrations that you have in there. I understand you drew like 50, 50 or 50 plus illustrations in there. And I didn't realize in addition to being a musician, you were also an illustrator. So that's really cool. Thank you. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, I started drawing when everybody else started drawing. I just didn't stop, you know. <laughs> Paco de Leon, author of Finance for the People, founder of the Hell Yeah Group. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. The pleasure was mine. And thank you, listeners, for your questions and also your experiences and your insights on, on our relationship with money. Caroline Smith uh, produced today's segment and... She is also our engagement producer. Form is also produced by Judy Campbell, Ariana Prail, Blanca Torres, and Grace One. Susan Britton is lead producer for the 10 o'clock hour. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin. Our interns are Jennifer Eng and Paul C. Kelly Campos. Our executive editor is Ethan Tobin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Mina Kim. Have a great weekend. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts.